Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Hey, it's so good to be back with you guys again. I was here just a few weeks ago, as you just heard, and it was a joy for me. And uh, uh, I had never, I have to confess, I have never experienced a traditional service. I was, uh, the, the next service, I was saved in a non-denominational church and kind of stayed in that stream for all of my tradition of Christianity for the last 30 years. So it was neat. And my son asked my wife uh, during that service as they were sitting in there, she goes, does dad, he says, does dad have to wear a robe? <laughs> it's funny to us, you would know. If, but uh, the only robe he sees me in is uh, when I get up in the morning. If you have your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to continue in this Advent series. I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. It's nice to see that uh, you guys are focusing on the Advent for this month of December. A lot of churches have moved away from that, and just as Tim said, it's good to put Jesus back into the reason for this season. So last week, Tim was opening up the series with the anticipation, and he was connecting Old Testament prophecies of the promise of Messiah and the signs that you could look for that would identify who the Messiah was and that you could uh, make it clear. And this week, we're going to look at what we have called, uh, we, we're calling this week, the announcement. So in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, starting in verse 26, I'm going to read through verse 38, and then we'll pray and jump into it. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an, the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word of God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Father, we thank you this morning for the time of worship, the reminder of all of these great things. Lord, as we sit here this morning, I pray that you would use your word to speak to our hearts. We yield ourselves right now. We we still our minds, we open our hearts. We ask that your Holy Spirit would use this time. Help me, God, as I stand here, and may you use this time in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 
So as I said, last week, we opened up the Advent series with Tim talking about the anticipation. And what an anticipation it must have been. 400 silent years, hundreds of years of prophetic utterances, going all the way back even to Genesis after the fall. And they were waiting patiently for the Messiah to be delivered to them so that they could finally have the King of Kings sitting on the throne. And God had done an amazing work through the nation of Israel for many years through the, through the, first, the second King, David, when he established them and prospered them. But they are now in a place where they are occupied by Rome. They are no longer ruling their own. They have this man named King Herod who's over them, who's not even a Jew. And they are simply in bondage and waiting to be delivered. They are lowly, they're despised, they are not respected, and they have great need, much like the world today. (laughs) And so what happens here is in this story, we find that God decides to bring a birth announcement. It's going to be the greatest birth announcement in the history of all mankind that will ever be. And it's an amazing thing because he sends the angel Gabriel to a lowly virgin named Mary. Now, birth announcements are something that seems to be kind of all of the rage right now. I don't know if you pay attention much online or whatever, but it's either birth announcements or gender reveals. This one was both. It was a birth announcement and a gender reveal. I wanted to look and see if we could find some interesting things about birth announcements and gender reveals, and I found some funny ones. Listen to this one. It says that uh, one couple tied a bunch of balloons filled with pink powder to a rodeo bull, and they loosed it into a ring as it thrashed about the balloons popped, revealing a large pink puff with each pop. The entire bull ended up pink with powder all over it. I'm sure that the bull was pleased about that. Another couple thought that it would be fun to have the future mother pitch a special softball filled with dye to the father, but they didn't plan on her being such a bad pitcher. She actually hit her mother-in-law in in the face where it exploded blue dye all over. Some say it was planned. Another couple tried the same thing, and instead of the ball exploding, the husband hit the woman in the face with the ball. Still didn't explode. Some say that was planned too. But the worst one was this. An off-duty patrol officer for the Border Patrol reportedly was ordered to pay $220,000 in restitution after he accidentally started a 47,000-acre wildfire that he and his wife's, at he and his wife's gender reveal party. The Arizona Daily Star reported 37-year-old Dennis Dickey pleaded guilty to the misdemeanor charge of causing a fire with explosives without a permit. He reportedly shot at a, shot at a target containing tannerite an explosive substance designed to detonate when shot by a firearm and colored powder that would reveal the baby's gender at the party. According to his lawyer, Dickey immediately called law enforcement and attained, admitted that he had started the blaze, but 40-mile-an-hour winds that day caused the fire to rapidly spread. Almost 800 firefighters worked nonstop for about a week to control the fire at a cost of about $8.2 million. No injuries were reported. No buildings were destroyed. Dickey told the magistrate, that it was absolutely horrible and it was the worst decision of his life. (laughs) I can imagine. Uh, I'm thinking that that child will not be going to college because he will be paying for this $220,000 fine, which will probably still be cheaper than college by the time that kid's that old. But 
birth announcements are nothing new. And this one that Jesus brings or that God brings to the world is the most special birth announcement and the most important birth announcement of all time. Because without this birth announcement, without God becoming man, the cross would not matter. We wouldn't have anything else until God condescends from heaven, puts on skin, lives the life that you and I need to live perfectly, dies innocently, and then raises from the dead. This is the announcement that the waiting is over, that God is going to fulfill his promise, that God is going to restore his people, and he has now opened the door to heaven. It's a wonderful announcement, but it comes to the most unlikely of people. I have three points that I want to share with you this morning out of these verses that we read. The first one is this, that God uses unlikely people. If you look back at verse 26 through 28, it says that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now, I want to do something this morning that... Uh, I think needs to be done in many cases in the Bible. Oftentimes when we read the Bible, we romanticize the figures, the people, the events, and all that's happening surrounding the stories that we read. And unfortunately, in this case, it has been radically done. I don't mean any disrespect to Mary, the individual, but in her life, she's either polarized. She's either completely ignored in the story or she's completely venerated. And I think it's somewhere in the middle of this. But what I want to point out to you is some of the things just in these couple of verses that will kind of give us a clue as to God's character, God's heart, and how God wants to use unlikely people. First of all, she was from a place called Nazareth, a town called Nazareth in a region called Galilee. And Nazareth was a small town at this time in history. It was probably only about 150 residents that lived there. Nazareth was settled after the return from exile from Babylon by Nehemiah and Ezra. And descendants from the tribe of Judah found this little town and made it their own. Uh, it was about 15 miles off of the main road. It had one small well and the best that I can say that it would be equated to today would be a backwards podunk town. It really didn't have anything in significance to it. Most of the people were related, so they all knew each other. They were cousins and family and all of that. Uh, something like you might see in West Virginia. <laughs> that was a joke. Anyways, <laughs> Galilee, the region that it was, was very disrespected by the people of Israel, especially those that were from the region of Jerusalem in the town, in the city, because there were so many Gentiles that were moving through there. Galilee was the region where Jesus sets up his three-year ministry. It's right, right along the Sea of Galilee. And there was an artery, a main artery, that would go up through the nation of Israel and head up north. And it was used as a passageway to get through. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus set his ministry up there. Because he knew that when the gospel would be given, when his ministry was exposed, those that were in that region would carry it, both north and south, bringing the message that he was, 
the Savior was here, that miracles were happening, and that he was around. And so it was strategic from the point of view of God establishing Jesus' ministry in that region. But by the people surrounding, it was disrespected because of so many Gentiles. There was great friction between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews even called the Gentiles dogs and had very little respect for them. And so the region itself was not esteemed. The town of Nazareth was not esteemed. In fact, there's one point in Scripture in John's Gospel where someone says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so it was not respected whatsoever. When you look at the word Nazareth the, in the Hebrew translation for it, it means guarded one, but there's a hidden little gem and secret to the word itself. The root of the word is nazir, where we get the word Nazareth. So nazir, nazir actually means shoot or branch, shoot or branch. So it's, it's, this, it's a picture that would be painted of a tree that's been chopped down. And then out of the middle of the stump would be a branch or a shoot that would begin to grow up. And so its name is derived from that picture or that image. And it's actually a fulfillment in scripture out of Isaiah chapter 11, verse one, where Isaiah said, a shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. From its roots, a branch will bear fruit. See, God had promised that the Messiah would fulfill sitting on the throne of David forever. And so the Messiah had to be connected to the family lineage of David. Both Mary and Joseph, by the way, were related to King David. You can follow their genealogies in Matthew and also in uh, Mark, I believe. Or, I'm sorry, Luke's gospel. But you can see that both of them were related to King David. And so the name of Nazareth, though it was highly disrespected or lowly esteemed, it held the promise that God was going to use to fulfill who the Messiah would be identified as coming through. Most people don't know this about David either. You know, we gloss over, as I said before, we, we romanticize stories. When we think about King David himself, we think about a, a giant slayer, a, a, a warrior, one who, who establishes the nation of Israel and, and, and finances the building of the temple for Solomon. But in reality, when David was called by the prophet Samuel to be the second king of Israel, Samuel goes over to Jesse's household and he says to call all of his sons to him so that he can pick the next king. All of the sons come out and Samuel's waiting for God to reveal who the next king will be, but God was silent. And he looks at Jesse and he says to Jesse, do you have yet another son? And Jesse says, I do have another son, but he's out in the field. And he goes, well, go get him. We're not going to sit down until you have him before me. And that is the one whom God picks a lowly shepherd boy, the last in the family line. He was really the runt of the family. And some theologians actually believe through rigorous study that it's possible and likely that David was actually the product of a prostitutional relationship or an adulterous affair by Jesse. So that would explain why he would be kind of rejected and cast out into the field and forgotten. You see, God has this tendency to take the unlikely, the despised, the lowly, and raise them up. He picks those that are rejected and decides to use them. 
And the place where Jesus was going to enter into humanity was going to be a place rejected, despised, to a people who were rejected and despised. And so God has this tendency to use the most unlikely of people. Think of Mary herself. She was a virgin pledged to be married. She was about 14 years old. They married much younger back then. In fact, if you were a young man and you got to the age of marriage and you were uh, 19 or 20 years old, uh, you were considered that you were beyond the age of marriage. And if you were a girl and you got to be around 17, they would even say that you possibly were cursed. This would explain why Elizabeth, Mary's aunt, thought that she was cursed because she was unable to bear children. And so the miracle of her being able to give birth as well to John the Baptist is so important. And so you have this 14-year-old virgin. She's from a poor family. She is from the tribe of Judah, and she is a descendant of King David. And she's betrothed to be married. And what that means is, and I'll explain this to you, you would meet the person you wanted to marry, then you would get betrothed, which is an actual ceremony that they would have. It was probably very similar to an actual wedding that we would see today. And then the groom would depart from the marriage and he would leave to go prepare a place for them to live. And so oftentimes he would build an addition onto his home or her home or family's home. And uh, then he would, when it was all finished, he would come back. It would be about a year later. Incidentally, Jesus did say this. He said, uh, and he mentioned this whole process. And he says, don't you know that I love you? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, don't you know that I will come back to receive you? That was all imagery of a marriage ceremony in Jewish tradition. And it was the promise that our king will return. It was a promise that God will return fulfill his promises. But my first point is that God decides to use the most unlikely people from the unlike, most unlikely places to accomplish the most amazing things. The second point that I want to bring out is that God always keeps his promises. In verses 29 through 33, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. So he first tells her that she will conceive and give birth to a son. And this is important because just as Pastor Tim read in Isaiah that unto us a child is born, a son is given. And we also know from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that it says that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. These are two unique promises that God spoke about the Messiah. And so we know that he was going to be a son that would be given. And so Mary, hearing that it would be a boy and his name would be Jesus, she knew the word. She would have known. She spent time in synagogue and it would have rung true in her heart. And so we know that God was going to keep his promise. He was indicating this to the message that Gabriel was giving to her. Secondly, we see that his name will be great, we're told. And this is amazing 
because in all seriousness, there has not been another name in all of history that has had the same influence and impact that the name of Jesus has. To the church, his name means salvation. His name means healing. His name means restoration, redemption. His name is everything that we hope in. In his name, from our lips, are praises that we sing. Around the throne in heaven, angels are singing his name. So for believers, it's amazing to us. We, we cherish this name. We love this name. It's amazing. Uh, I had a friend of mine who uh, just two days ago, she's in her 80s, and her and her husband live in Pennsylvania. And he had a, a very bad kidney stone, and it was nine millimeters in size, and so it was impossible for him to pass. So they had to do emergency surgery, and he's in his 80s. And before they went in, the doctor, who was a believer, he laid hands on my friend John and prayed for him in Jesus' name. Went in for the surgery, and as the surgery was happening, the stone had broken to pieces small enough that he would be able to pass. The power of Jesus' name. I would say that was Jesus. I will give him that. <laughs> and I think it even surprised the doctor. Charles Spurgeon said, no one has influenced history more than Jesus Christ. Is it not proven that he is great? Conquerors are great, and he is the greatest of them. Deliverers are great, and he is the greatest of them. Liberators are great, and he is the greatest of them. Saviors are great, and he is the greatest of them. Yes. Amen to Charles Spurgeon for that. Not only will he be great, and that it will be a son, but we also are told in, that verse, in those verses that God will give him the throne of his father, David. And this can be confusing to some people because when you think about Jesus and how his establishment of king of kings, and that is exactly what he is, when he came the first time in his earthly ministry, very many people confused the purpose of his coming. In fact, many of his disciples wanted him to go and to just take over the throne, kick out Rome and make Israel be what they're destined to be. But Jesus knew that his first coming was going to be as a suffering servant. He will come again as a conquering king. Hallelujah. And he will defeat everything at that point. And right now he is in waiting to return. And just like these, these people were waiting for the Messiah, we are waiting for the second return of our Messiah with great anticipation. And we have promises in scripture that he will come again, just like they did. But what's amazing is that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet Samuel said that he would have a throne that would remain forever, that David's throne would remain forever. And so what that, if you read through the scriptures, especially when you read through uh, the, the Old Testament and Chronicles and First and Second Samuel, you'll realize that the throne of Israel comes to an end, that even to this day, they don't have a king that sits on a throne. In fact, they were taken into captivity. There was, there were, it was certainly not the case, or at least the way, that we would perceive it, that God would perceive it. You see, the throne that he's going to sit on, David's throne, is going to be realized during the Rev book of Revelation, as we know as the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, where he will sit on an earthly throne in an earthly kingdom. We will see his majesty we will see his face shining like the sun. It's going to be an incredible event. 
And that will be the beginning of his earthly reign for eternity. Because after the thousand years, he's going to restore the entire earth. And we don't know much about what that's going to be like. All I know is God's going to do it and it's going to be incredible. And I'm going to be there and I hope you will be as well. But he was promised in 2 Samuel that his throne would remain forever. And so she knew that this promise that Gabriel was speaking of was the establishment, the kicking off, the beginning of the fulfillment of how that was going to take place. You see, God initiated the entire event. He initiated after the fall that he would be the one that would restore. He would be the one that brings man back into proper relationship with him. God designed it and he is the one who is going to fulfill it. It's going to be by his power and his power alone. And this brings me to my third point for us is that God's plans will always require God's power. In verse 34, it says, how, Mary says, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You see, in order for God to accomplish what he wants to do and what he wanted to do, it was going to take his mighty power and his mighty hand to do it. You see, many people believe in error that they can achieve salvation with God through their own good works. That if they stand before God on the great day of judgment and their good outweighs their bad, then they're in. Unfortunately, this is a thought of error. Scripture tells us very clearly that mankind, all of us, are born into sin. We are automatically separated from God. And it will require a work of God to bring us back into unity with him that only he can do. Ephesians says that you're saved by grace through faith so that no man could boast, not by works. In other words, you can't be good enough you can't have your bad or your good outweigh your bad because you are born with it already out of whack. And so unfortunately, in their error of thinking, they believe that in their own power, in their own strength, they can achieve salvation. It's been the curse of man throughout history. And this is the beauty of the gospel that God came and did it for us. He became perfect for us where we we're not going to be able to do it. And it was God's plan and God's power that accomplished this. What's amazing to me is that when we think of how Mary would be standing there hearing this amazing message from Gabriel, her first thought was, I'm a virgin. How is this going to happen? She was already in her mind and in her heart ready to work with God. How is this going to happen? And the condition of Mary is she had a surrendered heart. She had surrendered herself to the will of the Father because it says there later on in verse 38, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. And this is important because so many times when God is choosing to use unlikely people to fulfill his promises, and he opens us up to the opportunity to be, have his hand do the work in our lives. The one missing element that keeps him from accomplishing it is surrender. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's disbelief. 
But the truth is, is that when we surrender, all of those things are surrendered with us and we absolutely give God the permission and opportunity to do as he wants. And so the whole emphasis of the advent that, we've, that Pastor Tim wanted to bring to you is that we would no longer just make Christmas about all these things that it tries to become, but we would actually use it as an outward-facing, looking to friends and neighbors to invite them to, to bring the gospel to them. And I take heart in the fact that God uses unlikely people. Before Christ saved me, I was a mess. I was a drug-dealing mess. There's so much more to it. And he picked an unlikely person. And today, sitting in here, there are some unlikely people that God wants to use. And all it requires is a surrendered heart. Are you willing to do that this morning? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promise that you kept to bring Jesus that no longer is there a barrier between us and you. You've removed everything. That, Lord, in your first coming, you took upon your shoulders, your life, the sin of the world. And we can stand here this morning and by faith receive that free gift that you offer. I just want to pause in my prayer for a second. If you're sitting in here this morning and you have failed to surrender your life completely to Jesus to find salvation, to trust in him for an eternity in heaven. I want you to just pray with me right now. Father, I recognize my sin separates me and I ask you to cleanse me, to forgive me, to make me new. I ask you to fill me with your spirit, to give me new life. And I confess you as Lord and Savior this morning. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we just commit all things to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, church.